Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, Reiki practitioner, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and is not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, submit it on the podcast page at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join our Facebook group, Wellness Wellness Podcast Tribe. So today is a big episode. It is a very important episode for a number of reasons. I have a few exciting announcements and then an incredible guest. Let's start off with the announcements. First of all, don't forget, this is the last month that I'm running my big promo in San Diego for in-person Reiki clients. If you live in San Diego and want an in-person session with me, make sure you book this month to get that big discount before the price raises to my usual rates next month. You can do that on my website, christinaricewellness.com slash services. If you are unfamiliar with Reiki and want to learn more about it, make sure you check out my blog post all about Reiki, which you can also find on my website. And if you don't live in San Diego, you can also always book a distance session with me on there as well. Distance sessions are just as effective as in-person sessions. I have regular clients who see me via distance and absolutely love it. And I've had a few guests talk about their experience with both distance and in-person Reiki. I know my podcast with Liz Anthony and Meg Dahl, we discussed that so you can hear more about their experiences there. You can book that service as well on my website at christinaricewellness.com slash services. We'll do a little aura scan, balance your chakras, give you some Reiki, might let you know anything intuitively I pull. It is very unique experience. Every energy healer has his or her own style. And I feel pretty confident that you'll enjoy mine, especially if you listen to this podcast. If you don't live in San Diego and you want an in-person session with me, though, there is one way you can you can do that. And that is by coming to the Wellness Realness Retreat 2019. It is here. It is happening. I'm so excited. I have been bursting at the seams with joy and excitement over announcing this. This retreat is going to be epic. My retreat last year in Austin was such a huge success. Honestly, one of the best weekends of my life and the women who came still in contact with, I feel like it bonded us in a way that is just inexplicable. So I am just pumped to be hosting another retreat this summer. This year's retreat is going to be right here at home for me in beautiful, sunny San Diego, California. So if you didn't already need a reason to come over to West Coast, Best Coast, here is a reason slash if you already live on the West Coast, just pop on down. It's not a far drive. And it's going to be July 26th through July 28th. So that's a Friday through a Sunday. It will be a Friday afternoon through Sunday midday. So hopefully you don't have to take too much time off of work. You have to take that Friday off. And we will make it the most of our time. But I have been working really hard with my assistant Kelly and my intern Abby. And we have designed what I consider to be the best wellness weekend ever. Tickets are on sale right now, but here's the gist. We're going to start off the weekend getting to know each other. We're going to go to Alchemy Health. You probably see me post about them on social media. We're going to hang out, get nutrient drips, vitamin shots, have some non-alcoholic drinks, and Powerhouse Pizza is going to be catering that night. Saturday, we are going to go on a hike. We're going to go to Peace Pies, one of my favorite restaurants ever. We're going to spend the afternoon doing some nutrition, health workshops, a lot of body image work, self-love work. The ladies who came last year know how 
powerful this experience was. Very bonding, very emotional. Get ready for it. It's exciting. Then Chef Kelly Scott, Paleo Chef Kelly Scott from Kelly's Clean Kitchen is going to cook us an at-home meal. We're going to do a group Reiki session, group meditation, and then head out for some pressed freeze for anyone who wants to enjoy that. And then the next day, we are going to have a yoga class in the morning. We are going to have brunch catered by Parakeet Cafe, another one of my favorite places in the world. And then an acupuncture session, so group acupuncture, both cosmetic and traditional or just one or the other, whatever you want. Of course, you're an adult, so everything is optional. If you don't want to do anything, you don't have to, but we'll love to see what all the activities, but overall, it's going to be a great weekend of deep conversation, getting to know each other, getting to know like-minded people, and you will leave with some lifelong friends, and I'm so excited. There also might be a few exciting surprise guests popping in. That's all I can say. It might happen. And then Sunday afternoon, there are a few VIP tickets. If you get one of those VIP tickets, then we will have, well, I will have a one-on-one session with you for an hour. And that can be whatever you want. It could be a Reiki session. It could be a nutrition consulting session. It could be a life talk chatting session. It could be business consulting. It could be whatever. We can just talk. We can hang out, whatever you want for an hour. There are limited spaces available, so make sure you hop on this. You can go to bit.ly slash wellnessrealness2019, bit.ly slash wellnessrealness2019. The link will also be in the show notes, and you can find all the information about the retreat, what's included, what's not, pricing, an in-depth breakdown of what we will be doing. You can purchase your tickets there. It's all right there. I recommend purchasing sooner rather than later because I know there's already been interest and I haven't even announced it yet. Again, there are limited spots available. I'm taking a small group. I think after doing the retreat last year, we just realized that it's much better and more intimate in a smaller group of women so that everybody can, you know, say their piece and share and feel comfortable and safe and just everybody can really get to know each other. So it's going to be exclusive, private, intimate, and I just think an incredible experience. So I really hope to see you there. And actually, one thing I almost forgot, of course, you're going to get an epic goodie bag. And you guys know, I mean, if you've ever seen one of my giveaways or even the goodie bags last year, these are not regular goodie bags. These are swagged out wellness bags with a few hundred dollars worth of product in there. So all of my favorite brands are contributing and I am so excited about it. I'm actually pretty sure I still have a highlight somewhere up on my Instagram page with retreat footage from last year. You should check that out if you're curious what we did last year. But speaking of some of my favorite brands, goodie bags, as well as traveling, since I know many of you will be for this retreat, if you have not already tried Beekeepers Naturals products, now is the time. Hop on it. These products have seriously changed my life. I heard about this company a few years ago when it was just at its very beginning. Carly messaged me and asked if I wanted to try the product. She was just rolling out with it. And at the time, I couldn't because I was on a candida diet. (laughs) And then I just started seeing it pop up everywhere. And a bunch of my favorite health experts were talking about it. Chris Kresser was talking about it. Katie from Wellness Mama was talking about it. And then I decided to just buy, buy some. And I got the Propolis throat spray and my life has completely changed. And then since then, have tried all of their other products and they can do no wrong. I'm obsessed with all of their products. I love Beekeepers Naturals products because they really are natural. They're providing natural alternatives for, quote, supplements and just natural remedies for solving our different modern health challenges. All of these products are straight from the beehive. This is out in nature. This is my kind of supplement. Instead of taking a pill, you know, I talk about how it's ideal to get all of your nutrients and vitamins from food. If you can get something from a food source, that's where you should get it. And you can get so much from bee products and that's ideal in my eyes. Your body knows how to assimilate that whole food form. Much more so than having to break down a foreign supplement. Like cavemen 
couldn't find supplements out in nature, but they found some honey every once in a while, that's for sure. So let me highlight some of my favorite products. First of all, the Propolis Throat Spray, like I mentioned, is just amazing every day as immune support. I do about four sprays in my mouth every morning just as maintenance for my immune system. And then if I feel like I'm getting a sore throat or if I feel like I'm going to get sick or I'm traveling or my immune system just might be compromised, maybe not sleeping enough, maybe stressed out, I will double up on that dose and do that usually morning and night. It's also TSA friendly, so you can easily bring it with you if you're traveling, which is probably the best time to do it because germs. Not only does propolis have incredible germ-fighting properties, but it also contains over 300 beneficial vitamins, minerals, and compounds. Another one of their products that I take every single day is their bee-powered hive superfood complex, and I use this just like a daily supplement. It combines all of the superfoods from the hive, which is why I like to think of it as nature's multivitamin, but in food form. So the bee-powered contains their immune supportive propolis, which I already talked about, royal jelly, which is great for the brain. It's great for your skin. Then there's bee pollen, which is really energizing. And of course, their signature raw enzymatic honey. Not all honey is the same. This is real deal. It tastes delicious and I cannot say enough good things about it. I definitely feel the difference when I'm taking this regularly versus when I stop. I will just take a teaspoon in the morning for energy and all of those different vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, immune support. You can also use it like honey and drizzle it on top of food, over a bowl, over a smoothie, whatever you like. Or even use it as a face mask because honey makes a great face mask and this is super powered honey. So this is the ultimate face mask. Speaking of their honey, whenever I want a little bit at night, I'll go with their Bee Chill Hemp Honey, which comes in both jars and sticks. And the sticks are great for on the go or just single serving. So the Bee Chill is made with a high potency hemp oil and MCT emulsion. So it's going to maximize that bioavailability and the absorption within the body. It's made with USA grown hemp and you get 28 milligrams of hemp oil per teaspoon or 20 milligrams per honey stick. I love to mix this in with my nighttime elixir or if I just want a little nighttime snack. Sometimes I'll just heat up some berries. This is the move. Heat up some frozen berries and just drizzle this on top. Chills you out. Tastes delicious. Or I'll just spoon it before bed because actually taking honey on an empty stomach before bed can sometimes help to support sleep. I always recommend their cacao honey to anyone who likes that bit of chocolate. That one mixed with almond butter is insane. And of course their brain fuel, which is a nootropic formula that has natural compounds that will enhance your memory, performance, and cognition. It's free of caffeine. So if you're looking to stay awake, stay alert, be really focused and concentrated, get rid of your brain fog, but you don't want any jitters, you don't do well with caffeine, I don't do very well with normal caffeine, then check out the Beelixir Brain Fuel. It's just in a little vial you can down in the morning and for the rest of the day you will feel incredible. And no crash. So if you are ready to try out your Beekeepers Naturals products, go to beekeepersnaturals.com slash CRW and you will receive 15% off of your purchase with my discount code CRW. So again, head to beekeepersnaturals.com slash CRW. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S dot com slash CRW and my discount code CRW will get you 15% off. Speaking of natural solutions, it is time for me to introduce today's guest, Dr. Lara Bryden. Dr. Bryden has been one of my dream guests to have on this podcast ever since I started the show. She is someone who I admire so much and respect so much for all of her incredible work in women's health. And she has changed so many women's lives, and it was such an honor to be able to chat with her on the podcast. If you're not familiar with Dr. Bryden, she is a naturopathic doctor and called the Period Revolutionary, which I fully stand behind. She is all about helping women and spreading awareness about women's health and alternatives to hormonal birth control and having a truly healthy period. 
I'm sure many of you already know of her book, Period Repair Manual. This is a manifesto of natural treatment for better hormones and better periods, and it gives a lot of practical solutions using nutrition, supplements, and natural hormones so that women can optimize their hormonal health. This is a book that definitely changed my life. If you're a practitioner, you absolutely have to have this book. If you're a woman, I honestly think you absolutely have to have this book. I also know that for many of my male colleagues, whether they be other health coaches or fitness trainers or even doctors, they've told me that this book has helped them so much as well. So I just really think everybody should give this a read because women's hormones affect everybody. If you are a man and you're dating a woman, you need to understand this stuff. And if you're a woman, you need to understand this. Dr. Bryden is one of my go-to resources when it comes to anything related to women's health in general, female hormones, PCOS, endometriosis, amenorrhea, natural alternatives to hormonal birth control, forms of birth control in general. She covers it all. Her website LaraBryden.com is an incredible resource. That's L-A-R-A-B-R-I-D-E-N.com. Her website is an incredible resource. If you are a woman, she has so much free information out there that really can change your life. So make sure you check that out. Search around if you are interested in a certain topic. It is truly a goldmine of information. So I'm very excited for you guys to hear this conversation that I had with Dr. Lara Bryden. We discuss periods, birth control, PCOS, amenorrhea, everything in between. And I know that this episode will resonate with a lot of you. So make sure you let her know if you enjoyed it and what you thought. Give her that feedback. Make sure you head to her website if you haven't already. And make sure you pick up Period Repair Manual if you do not already own that book. It's incredible. I consider it a classic in the health space. Okay, now is the time you have all been waiting for. It's time to hop into this conversation with the incredible Dr. Lara Bryden. Well, I would love to just start off by you introducing yourself to my audience. I don't know how they wouldn't know who you are, but I would love for you to just give an introduction. Also, talk a little bit about how you got into women's medicine to begin with. Okay, yeah, great. So I'm Lara Bryden, the author of Period Repair Manual. And I'm a naturopathic doctor. I've been working with women to help them have better periods for about 20 years. And the way I got into working with women specifically was just all the women who were coming to me who just were not getting answers from their doctors, not getting answers with the pill, which I'm sure you can understand. So I just started to see over the years that diet changes, nutritional supplements, herbal medicines work really well. The female body responds really well to those kinds of things. So then I finally decided a few years ago to put that all into a book, a sort of a compilation of what works. And it's been great that it's reached so many people and helped so many people. Yeah. What do you think was the most controversial thing that was in this book? (laughs) Yeah, good question. Um, Probably, I guess, what I had to say about the pill, which is that the pill shuts down hormones, kind of induces a more like a chemical menopause than any kind of hormone balance, which is the narrative we've been sold about it. It's a radical thing to say, but it shouldn't be because it's just a description of reality. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I would love for you to talk more about that. Like, what does that mean when you're saying it's a type of chemical menopause? Yeah. So those drugs, I refuse to use the word hormone anymore to refer to the substances in the pill or the injection or the implant or the ring or whatever it is. I call them contraceptive drugs. They work primarily by shutting down ovarian function temporarily, but it is more akin to menopause than anything else. It's kind of like a a chemical castration, really. And then it gives back these contraceptive drugs as a kind of hormone replacement. But the problem is they're not as good as our own hormones because they're not actual hormones. So an example would be one of the main progestin drugs. It's sometimes called progesterone, but it's not. One of the main ones is called levongestrol. It's in lots of different types of birth control and it can cause hair loss, for example. This is a good example because progesterone is great for hair 
helps hair to grow, has sort of an anti-testosterone effect naturally, and whereas levonorgestrel is actually more like testosterone than it is like progesterone, so it's just one of the reasons it can cause breakouts, hair loss. Yeah, that's just one of the examples of what <laughs> birth control can do in the body. Yeah. Well, what about, I know you said like pill bleeds are not are not real bleeds. Um, yeah. What, what is it then? What's the pill bleed? Like, yeah. What's going on there? It's just a drug withdrawal bleed. So there's the estrogen drug that's in there does build up a uterine lining, thickens the uterine lining, similar to how our own estrogen would. But th the difference is, you know, when we have a real cycle, that's because we've moved through a few different phases, including ovulation. We get First we get estrogen, then we get progesterone after ovulation, and then that is the timing of a real bleed. A pill bleed is just the dosing of a drug. So at some point, they've decided every 30 days, roughly, you're going to take some sugar pills, withdraw from the contraceptive drug, and then get a withdrawal bleed. And it doesn't mean anything. It certainly doesn't need to be monthly. There's no medical reason to have... A, a bleed monthly on the pill. There's really no medical reason to induce, you know, have a bleed very often at all on the pill. And the problem is by thinking that they're somehow equivalent to periods when they're not has led to this strange narrative that the pill can regulate periods when of course it can't. It's, it's, it's not regulating hormones because you really have no hormones when you're on the pill. It's not regulating periods because they're not real periods. So what about what's been going on? I see people saying that women don't even need periods. Why do I women know, need periods? That's, that's the perfect question to ask at this, at this point in time. So first of all, we don't need pill bleeds. We don't need pill bleeds, monthly pill bleeds, which the problem is if you, if anyone, for anyone who's been calling those periods, then okay, yes, you don't need so-called periods on the pill, except they were never periods anyway. But we do need ovulation, arguably. Ovulation is the main event of a real menstrual cycle. It's how we make our hormone progesterone. It's the only way we can make that. And we need that for general health, for um, brain health, bone health, um, healthy immune system, and mood, potentially, long-term, because the progesterone is quite good for the brain. Um, so, we, I would argue we do need, we don't need pill bleeds, but we do need monthly cycles because it's how we make hormones. And if you think about, I mean, this whole analogy, this whole idea that women don't need cycles is kind of saying women don't need hormones, which would be kind of like saying, you know, men don't need their testosterone. You know, this, I always talk about how we're sold this story that you don't need ovulation, you don't need hormones until you're ready to make a baby to say that to men would be like saying you don't need your testosterone until you're ready to make a baby, which would be crazy. But that's because we value testosterone more than we value our own hormones. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think, yeah. I mean, for me, this is something that comes up a lot because I talk to a lot of women who have amenorrhea and it's a difficult conversation because, you know, it can be hard for them to eat more, move less, do those types of things, get the period back because they, they're like, well, why do I need my period? Right. That, yes. <laughs> so, okay, the evidence, the science on this is very clear. To lose your period because of under eating or not eating enough to keep up with your level of activity is bad for health. It is a problem for health in the long term. There's very little, there's no question about that at all. So in long term, that can be a problem for bone health. That can be a problem for long term, long term cardiovascular health. And the, you can't fix that with the pill. That's also in the science and the research that, you know, they used to think, okay, this woman is amenorrheic, not having her period. So we'll just give her the pill. So, so she's having some hormones, I guess, or some, some pill bleeds. The, the, because the contraceptive drugs don't have the same benefits as our own hormones, you know, taking the pill in that situation doesn't really fix anything. So we, yeah, we do need periods to make hormones to be healthy. And the, it's good that you bring up the topic of under eating because it is, I find it's becoming more common for different reasons. I think the, you know, I think lots of things, I think in the wellness space, there's 
maybe an emphasis on clean eating, which can be a problem. Low carb in particular can be a problem for losing periods for some women. And then, yeah, this message from some circles where that's okay, where we don't really need periods. So I, I hope that, you know, this interview reaches some women reaches some of your listeners and they can decide, yeah, maybe I do want to eat enough so I can ovulate and make hormones. Yeah. Let's dive into this topic of more under eating and also carbohydrates. Um, I think people are really interested in this right now. And I agree. I think as Instagram has gotten more popular, um, keto has gotten more popular and a lot of women in their reproductive years are, um, eating low carb, Um, I mean, I think one question that a lot of women struggle with is how do I know if I'm eating enough? Because I see a lot of women who genuinely think they're eating a lot and they're still not, you know? So I think it's hard for people to know how, how do they know if they're eating enough? Okay. Well, one thing is your period. It's a, I call it the monthly report card. Mm -hmm. So if you, and it takes a few months to lose your period from under eating. So you need to give it, you know, that six to 12 months. But if it's very simple, I mean, if you lose your period, there's a real possibility that it's because that's a sign that it's that you're not eating enough. So there are some women who can do keto and keep menstruating, keep ovulating regularly, having proper cycles. Then I would say in their case, I guess their body can cope with that, that the diet is okay for them. But for any other young women, losing the period is one of the best signs that it just wasn't enough food. And one of the things to consider is that a keto diet or a low-carb diet suppresses appetite. So it's it can also lead to some sort of unintentional undereating where you're thinking, but I just don't feel hungry. You know, I've, I've eaten as much as I can in the day, which in that case, and if there's clear evidence that undereating is the reason for no period, then it actually is important probably to switch to eating higher, for one thing, higher calorie foods and bringing some, just actively bringing some carbs back. And by carbs, I mean, it doesn't have to be bread or sugar or anything like that, but you know, potentially some rice, potatoes, starchy vegetables like that. And, and you can, yeah, you can nourish your body a lot more effectively with those denser, higher calorie foods. Yeah. So let's talk more about low carb or ketogenic diet. So Let's say somebody was following a low-carbohydrate diet um, but still eating plenty of calories. Do you still see a problem with that? For some women. Not for everyone, mm-hmm. but definitely for some. And there's very little science about it. If so as soon as I start talking about that on Twitter or social media, I get people saying, well, there's no science. There's no studies to show that. Well, that's because no one's really studied that. There's mm-hmm. one scientist who's looked at it a little bit. And she has concluded that what happens is, even if we're getting enough calories, the, the part of our brain called the hypothalamus, which is it's this hormone command center in our brain, it's waiting for a certain level of blood glucose or a certain level of insulin to then decide if it's safe to ovulate and then start signaling the ovaries. So there there is a mechanism in place for why adequate calories but too low carb can still shut down periods okay interesting and what about like optimal level of carbohydrates i i heard i think it was laura schoenfeld saying that she had heard from you about a newer study about like an optimal carbohydrate intake for reproductive function could you tell me more about that, if you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, I know Laura's work. She's great, actually. Yeah, yeah so she she works a, a lot of her work is helping women to recover from low carb. Um, like I said, there's not a lot of science. I've been speaking with various other practitioners and you know trainers, and just getting a consensus of what people are finding. And it seems to be around the 150 grams per day minimum. Some women seem to need more, but that seems to be sort of a, a cut off. That, and that 150 also is in that little bit of research that I just mentioned about the hypothalamus and the ovulation signaling she was talking about around 150 grams of carbohydrates to, to kind of reach that glucose threshold. So I'd love to see more research. It'd be mm-hmm. great if some people would actually look at this a bit more specifically. And one thing I'll say, it also seems more important for younger women so women in their 20s, certainly teenagers, 20s, maybe up to early 30s, 
And then after a certain point, kind of after my late 30s into 40s, you know, it's a different situation and women, women can usually do a lot better on lower carbs. So it's about looking at who's giving the advice. You know, is it men talking about how great it is? Is it women in their 40s or, you know, menopause talking about how great low, low carb is? That's a very different situation than a woman in her 20s who has whose physiology is different, quite frankly. It's just a more sensitive time hormonally, mm. which makes sense because your body is needs has that extra challenge of potentially wanting to make a baby, which is what it all it's all about. Even if you don't actually want a baby, it's still your body has to decide that you're healthy enough and eating enough to do that. Yeah. Well, and on the topic of amenorrhea or hypothalamic amenorrhea, so under eating often is the main cause. And then what else are you seeing as other main causes of that? Yeah, let's there are really two main reasons for irregular periods or no periods. One is hypothalamic amenorrhea or essentially under eating, although stress can affect it as well. The second one is PCOS. And I mention it because the two things get confused quite often for various reasons, which I'll go into. So that's something called polycystic ovarian syndrome. In its true form, it's a situation of irregular ovulation or no ovulation you could still be having a few bleeds, but essentially no regular ovulation plus high male hormones. So tip in its classic form, PCOS would present with, you know, um, hormonal acne along the chin, you know, some body hair, that sort of thing. And it, it's a different situation in that it's not caused by under eating. It's usually more associated with something called insulin resistance, which often, requires a low carb diet. So you can, in a, in a way, from a diet perspective, they're kind of the opposite diagnosis. One being hypothalamic amenorrhea, you need to eat more food and more carbs. The diagnosis of PCOS, you potentially need to eat fewer carbs. But the, the reason it's so important to discuss this is a number of women, young women especially, are being told they have PCOS when they don't. And it happens for a couple of years. You may even know someone. I'm sure some of your listeners are thinking, oh, yeah, that's that's potentially me. So the problem me. is, okay, that's <laughs> you. So the problem is doctors are making the mistake. I have to say it's just a, a mistaken diagnostic process. So they, they make the mistake of using an ultrasound to look at the ovaries and say, okay, there's something called polycystic ovaries there, which doesn't really mean anything. And then they immediately say, Plus, you're not having periods, plus polycystic ovaries, therefore you must have PCOS. That is not accurate. It cannot be diagnosed that way. Women with hypothalamic amenorrhea can totally have polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. And they could potentially also have a bit of acne. You know, So there's no, no reason that that wouldn't happen. And so it worries me quite a lot, and I've written about this quite a lot. I have a couple of blog posts. One's called Maybe It's Not PCOS, where I talk about that a bit more and how to differentiate between hypothalamic amenorrhea and PCOS. I have a couple more. I think I have one called Do You Have PCOS or Hypothalamic Amenorrhea or Both? And I'm just trying to rescue, I guess is the way I see it, you know, all the young women who've been mistakenly told they have PCOS and are going lower and lower carb, trying to get their period back. And they're never going to get it back that way because they're actually doing the completely wrong thing, unfortunately. Um, does so, that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So can you talk about how each of those are properly diagnosed? Yeah. Well, hypothalamic amenorrhea is the diagnosis of everything else has been ruled out and there is evidence of under eating. So the doctor should be asking about that mm -hmm. in my own, with my own patients for hypothalamic amenorrhea. I also look at two hormones on blood test. One is called fasting insulin and the other one is called LH. Well, I use, I use those two hormones, insulin and LH to also help to diagnose PCOS. So I, I use those hormones to differentiate between the two with hypothalamic amenorrhea both insulin and LH will be low. And that means LH will be low compared to another hormone called FSH. So it's kind of a ratio when it comes to LH. So with hypothalamic amenorrhea, they're too low, both a sign that there's just not enough food coming in. With PCOS, LH is usually high and insulin can be high if it's the insulin 
resistant type of PCOS. So that's the, the main diagnosis. Um, saying again that the ultrasound is not helpful and really shouldn't even really be done as part of the diagnostic procedure for PCOS because contrary to the fact that I know the condition is called polycystic ovaries, but it's actually really nothing to do with cysts on the ovaries. They're, they're not cysts, they're just the eggs. It just means having a greater number of eggs at any one time, which is common in young women. It can happen if you're just not ovulating for some reason. So I hope that's helpful. The, yeah. the other part, I guess, re- the definitive way of knowing, I mean, more in the PCOS picture would be having clear signs of high testosterone, like quite a significant amount of body hair would be more evidence that something like that's happening. Not just a little bit of hair on the upper lip, but like, you know, a hair on the chest, hair on the stomach, mm-hmm. hair around the nipples, hair on the legs, like on the upper legs, and that sort of thing can that puts it a bit more in the category of PCOS, but that it, it just needs to, I guess, to say how to, di- how to differentiate, how to diagnose the two conditions, I would say carefully, <laughs> you know, in, with context and keeping in mind that there's some, the, the post pill situation adds to it further. So it's not unusual to not get your period back straight away when stopping the pill. That's just a, a post pill amenorrhea, or it could be a po- temporary post pill PCOS that you're going to outgrow and you just needs a year or two to um, to change. I have a couple of patient stories in my book Period Repair Manual about post pill situations. One is a one is a situation where she was post pill and her doctor said, "Oh, I think you have PCOS," and then it turns out she didn't. So that I mean, those those um, examples can be helpful too, just to see how it went for some of my patients. Yeah, in when we're talking about PCOS, so you talked about insulin resistant type what yeah. would be the other type yeah <laughs> yeah good call good catch there yeah well in most women with true pcos have insulin resistance or kind of a pre-diabetes metabolic situation driving it not causing it but playing a big role in it that's about of all the women with pcos that's about 80 percent of them the other 20 percent, there's some other thing that's causing high male hormones or high testosterone. And that can be a temporary post-pill situation. I call that post-pill PCOS. That can be a chronic sort of underlying inflammation that could be coming from the gut. And that could be male hormones or androgens coming from the adrenal glands, which is a completely different situation. I talk about that in my book, adrenal PCOS. So that you can usually tell on the blood test because that in that situation, really the only male hormone that's high is a hormone called DEA, sorry, DHEA, DHEAS. And the doctor can measure that. And so if that's the situation, then that requires different treatments that are more specifically for adrenal glands rather than for insulin or, you know, for recovering post pill. Okay. Um, with insulin resistant type PCOS, is there still like a lower limit like of carbs or you wouldn't want anyone still going below a certain amount for women? Potentially. Yeah. So with insulin resistance, the very first step, if you know for certain that you have insulin resistance, like if insulin was measured mm-hmm. and that means measuring the hormone insulin, not just, not just glucose because mm-hmm. having, um, normal blood glucose does not mean that you don't have insulin resistance. So just to be clear, it's worth having the doctor test insulin. If there is insulin resistance, then the very first step is to cut sugar. I'm pretty clear on that. I explain why in the book, but by sugar, I mean anything dessert-like. So obviously, you know, like normal desserts, ice cream, soft drinks, things like that, but also fruit juice and kind of healthier desserts like date balls and can be a in can be a problem for insulin resistance. Doesn't mean that everyone has to avoid those all the time, but if there is insulin resistance, that that's the first step is to temper you know, remove those foods. And then beyond because they're they're carbohydrates, I and mean, that's the worst type of carbohydrate, is concentrated sugar, concentrated fructose. Then beyond that, with my patients, I kind of go as low carb as feels good. So Mm -hmm. we might start with a low carb breakfast, which is a really good way to extend the natural ketosis that happens overnight. So, and then, um, but at some point during the day, I find most women need 
some amount of carb just to kind of feel good mm-hmm. and settle down the nervous system. So even with my insulin resistant, mildly insulin, moderately insulin resistant patients, I'll still say, I think you still have a portion of carbohydrate, at least with dinner, some rice or potato. Occasionally there's someone who has such severe, severe insulin resistance that I say, look, let's go low carb every meal for a while. Mm-hmm. So the short, especially it depends on age too. So again, it's women in their twenties, I think are going to struggle going very low carb, even yeah. in any situation. Yeah. Well, I think this also relates back to exercise, which I'd like to talk to you about as well, because, um, same with people with HA, you know, a lot of them are not only under eating, but also over training and yeah. with PCOS, you know, if they're doing hit workouts every day, that could definitely be uh, affecting them. So what do you usually recommend in terms of exercise? Um, for women in general, and also if you're struggling with HA and or PCOS? Yeah, there's a lot of individual variation. I think with HA, hypothalamic mm-hmm. amenorrhea, it's really being about to keep up if, uh, keep up with the food, keep up, you know, eat enough to compensate for the amount of activity you're doing. And there's online calculations. I mean, if you speak to a, a dietitian or a nutritionist who knows how to do this, you can say, okay, I'm doing this many hours per day. Um it, it ends up being a lot of food, like thousands of calories, you know, and you can't afford, if you're, if you're doing a high level of activity, I say to some, you can't basically afford to eat any low calorie foods, like no salads, you know, it has to be kind of meat and starchy things and, you know, fat and really trying to keep up. I think unless there's a re with HA, unless there's a reason like a professional athlete or competitive athlete, unless there's a reason to keep up with that super high level of activity, I think it, it's much easier to drop back some of the activity so you don't have to eat as much. That's just an easier way to get there. Um, and in terms of the best type of exercise, yeah, I don't, I don't have a one size fits all. I think, you know, I think it, it sort of depends on what you enjoy. Um, so that's on the HA side of things on the PCOS side. And if it's true PCOS, again, it really needs the di- the diagnosis is important that it's not, actually HA that's just been mistakenly called PCOS because that's an important thing to identify. But with true PCOS, with insulin resistant PCOS, I think actually, yes, strength training, HIIT training can be quite helpful because Mm -hmm. it improves insulin sensitivity of the muscles. And I don't, I wouldn't say there's an upper limit for PCOS. Um, Just taking care that you don't slide into HA because you can start out having PCOS and then very like without ever even really being in the sweet spot where you're getting regular periods, you can move all the way through into going from insulin resistance to your insulin being too low and potentially being more in more of the under eating HA situation. So gentler is probably better, just giving your body a chance to show what it can do, right? And if when you get to the spot where you feel good and you're having regular cycles, that's that's probably the good, you know, the right level of exercise and food okay um with ha i know like in the in the book no period now what they talk a lot about yeah like 2500 calories minimum are you on that train as well yes i've chatted with nicola Mm -hmm. who wrote that book nicola rinaldi yeah i i think i think that sounds about right to recover Mm -hmm. and i think she would agree i don't think that means doesn't mean 2500 calories a day forever to keep it going but just to get re-nourished and talk the hypothalamus into cycling again yeah that seems about right she, she got that number from you know a lot of her clients kind of um participants that she was working in with in her in her groups so mm-hmm. yeah I, I would agree yeah so i talk to a lot of women who have dropped back on their exercise and they say they're eating a lot of food and still no period what would you recommend to women who are in that situation okay well first of all to recognize the lag time it can take probably minimum three to four months up to a year and nicola talks about that too Mm -hmm. in her book you it's about so it's about committing to it because i've had yeah i've had a couple comments on social media where people say i've been eating carbs like tons of carbs for you know, a month mm-hmm. and still no period. It's like, that's not enough time. It needs, it could take six months like that, which is, I know it's hard when you have to just commit to something with, before you see the results. But I would say that's the first thing. You know, there are other 
nutrients that are required. So obviously there has to be enough protein as well coming in. Um, I worry, well, I worry quite a lot about vegan diets, potentially not having the nutrition required for ovulation. I've written about that a few times, but one of the nutrients that could be missing in a vegan diet, it's important for ovulation generally, is zinc. The ovaries love zinc. So sometimes with my patients who are trying to get their periods back, recovering from under-eating or recovering from post-pill, I will prescribe zinc. And I talk about that in the book. Just as an easy, the nice, inexpensive, kind of easy way to give the ovaries some extra support. Um, yeah, I was just reading your post from the other day about plant di- plant-based diets and periods. And um, I'm sure people are going to read that and think, well, can I just supplement? And is that enough? Like if someone wants to be plant-based and they are supplementing with everything, do you think that's sufficient enough? Or what's your opinion on that? Yeah. Okay. So my blog post is, and I encourage people to go on there and comment Mm -hmm. because I do read the comments and other people read the comments. It's a blog post called Calling All Vegans. Tell me about your periods. (sighs) And I was, I'm not sure with you. I was encouraged to see how many women were reporting that their periods were okay after a number of years vegan, because that's not what I see with my patients. So that's actually not fitting with what I'm seeing with the women I'm talking to, but at the same time, it's encouraging to see that out there. So in answer to your question, can supplementation help? Yes, of course. So I think that some of the key missing nutrients on a vegan diet, well, the first one is zinc, obviously B12, everyone knows about that, you know, potentially protein, although you can use protein powders and get there quite easily. Choline, taurine, preformed vitamin A, vitamin B6, vitamin B2, iodine, probably selenium. I'm just listing some of the ones off the top of my head that... A good amount. Um, <laughs> it's, a good, it's a lot. Yeah, so you probably, and I list those most of those in the blog post, I think, you probably want to get on top of most of those. And even then, you know, my experience, all I can, I can say is just personally as a, as a doctor, as a clinician, when patients sit down with me and they're describing what's happening with their periods and we're trying to make a plan, if, if at some point, if they then tell me that they're vegan and have been vegan for a few years, I feel worried, you know, then I just, my brain kind of shifts and I think, okay, well, I think we maybe have to lower our expectations of what can actually happen here with your periods. That's my experience as a clinician, because obviously I want the best for people. I want it to work for them. And I've just found that things don't work as well when you're on a vegan diet. So I hope I haven't upset too many people with that. You know, I I understand lots of some of the reasons for going vegan. Certainly I do understand that. But I think and, you know, I'm I'm concerned about animal welfare as well and the environment. And, you know, it's that whole it's actually a more nuanced conversation about that. Mm -hmm. I think what our food choices can mean for the environment and for animals so yeah i it's a big conversation don't worry it is you're you're being very nice about it i'm a lot more controversial when when someone brings up the vegan diet to me um but i'm curious i'm curious do you have like um minimums that you like to set for optimal health with with patients um in terms of protein and fat since we haven't really talked about those like you'd like to see people getting a certain amount of those protein is one of the key nutrients we'll talk about protein first Mm -hmm. i think we depending on our body size it really depends on our lean muscle mass like our and our just actual body size how much protein we need but it's in the 70 to 90 grams a day probably for most women which is actually quite a lot it's you know like 20 to 30 grams per meal, mm-hmm. keeping in mind like an egg has like eight grams. So, you know, to reach the 20 grams, you need, um, you know, three eggs kind of would do it or a piece of chicken or, you know, you sort of have to, and that's grams of protein, not total grams of the food. And there does seem to be some evidence that having spacing the protein out, having those amino acids coming in at the three times a day is more beneficial than just trying to have it all in one meal. Mm-hmm. Well, your body can can only absorb so much, so you could never get it all in one meal. Um, so protein is really important for just all kinds of reasons. I think for hormonal signaling, it seems to stabilize, you know, blood sugar, stabilize the nervous system, stabilize appetite. And then in terms of the amount of 
requirement for fat. No, I don't have a magic number for that. I think it sort of depends. You could, you could certainly have more fat to try to keep up with the calories that you're needing if you're amenorrheic mm-hmm. and needing more calories. Once you've hit your target for protein and carbohydrate, if you're needing more calories, you can use healthy fat, you know, healthy fats to do that. And by healthy fats, I mean not vegetable oils, you know, not cheap, nasty, damaged fats, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just kind of wrapping up the conversation with PCOS, do you mostly help women manage that through diet and lifestyle changes? Or because I know a lot of women are just told to go on the pill and obviously that wouldn't be your course of action. Or is there more that they should be be doing besides diet and lifestyle adjustments? Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, just to be clear, the pill is not treatment for PCOS. It arguably makes it worse. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, if PCOS is a condition of not ovulating very well, plus insulin resistance, the pill suppresses ovulation and potentially causes insulin resistance. So the pill is actually, that's why the pill can worsen the underlying problem of PCOS. It seems kind of madness to me that it's been seen as standard treatment. That granted, though, some pills can suppress the symptoms, which certainly in terms of some of the types of contraceptive drugs can dry up skin oils and suppress male hormones. But only for as long as you take it, right? As soon as you stop those drugs, your your male hormones will shoot up to higher than they were before, at least temporarily. So for that reason, it's not a good solution. Um, Yeah, yeah, there are treatments, you know, in addition to identifying if there's insulin resistance and then altering the diet to address that. There are a couple of supplements that work well for PCOS. One is, it's really worth mentioning, one is inositol. Your your listeners might have heard about it. Mm It it actually, it's gone undergone a couple of cl- like pretty major kind of clinical trials and um, meta what's called a meta analysis, looking at all different trials. And it's it's evidence based medicine now for PCOS. I really I'm a big fan, and it's not expensive. You can buy any brand. It's called inositol. And the other supplement that can be really helpful for true PCOS is zinc because it promotes ovulation, has a natural anti androgen effect, and the good news about PCOS is it looks to be from the research that a lot of women will outgrow it. So it's more common in younger women because when we're younger, we have higher male hormones. We have more follicles, more eggs, more just a different kind of ovarian activity when we're younger. So that can be, yeah, that can just be hopeful, I think, for women knowing that quite possibly by the time they're in their 30s, they'll be ovulating regularly and the whole PCOS thing could be a thing of the past. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I've been on inositol um, and zinc just seems to be the the hero out here. I know. (laughs) I know. So I want you to talk a bit more about other solutions for birth control. So if we're not a fan of the pill, I think a lot of women really struggle with this because more people are finding out about the negative effects of the pill, um, but they don't want to get pregnant, and there's a lot of confusion. Um, And I would really like for you to touch on fertility awareness method and also the copper IUD because I think those are kind of the two most popular alternatives, um, and people have a lot of questions around it. So maybe you could chat with me a bit about those. Okay, we'll do those too. And also, I'm going to mention condoms because mm-hmm. I am a fan of them. Yeah, I don't know why they're they're so low down the list. It just worth on on the topic of condoms, it's really worth getting something that fits properly, a better quality condom. That's going to make it a lot more effective. I talk about a couple brands in my book, and there's a couple of different brands now where you can there's different sizes the man can choose and get one that's that fits properly. So that's condoms. But mm-hmm. fertility awareness method is the method of avoiding sex or avoiding unprotected sex on the days when we're fertile, which is not that hard to do because we are, as women, we're only fertile for about six days per month. We're actually only fertile for about two days per month, but sperm can live for four or five days. So we have to add those days on. And you can learn to do that or you can use, learn to know when you're fertile or you can use one of various devices and apps that are out there now for kind of calculating that one is called Daisy, um, which I'm a fan of. There's a couple, there's a 
few more. And they, once you learn to do it properly, you can strategically, you know, use a condom or not have um, unprotected sex during your fertile days. But during your non-fertile days, you're, you know, good to go. Basically, you have there's virtually no chance of becoming pregnant on those days as long as you know when they are. And just to, as a caution, you, this should be obvious, but it's worth saying, you can't just rely on your standard kind of period app and when it's telling you you're ovulating and looking at that because you do need some kind of objective measure the one that most people use is temperature our temperature goes up after ovulation so you take your resting temperature every morning and that can help that can define help to define the fertile window so hopefully that answers the basic questions i mean there's lots of resources about that yeah how effective is that it depends on the type of way that you're doing it so it can be up to you know 99 point something percent effective Mm -hmm. so so equal to the pill but it it sort of depends on yeah the 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 method you're using potentially the app you're using but um the the, probably the gold standard is doing something called symptothermal or fertility awareness method where you track your cervical mucus fluid plus temperature plus learn how to read those signs um but there's lots of different ways. Yeah. Have you talked about Daisy or any of the other fertility awareness? Not on apps? the podcast yet, but I am a big oh. fan of Daisy. That's usually what I recommend yeah. to people. Yeah. So it's a little, it's a computer algorithm that does the calculations for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, I'm a fan too. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about the copper IUD um, specifically just because I think people already kind of know about the IUD, the regular IUD, but so copper IUD seems to be the better alternative, but I've seen problems with that too. Um, yeah. So maybe you could speak more to that. Yeah. It's interesting you'd call it, it's interesting just to hear the hormonal IUD called the regular IUD because it came <laughs> second, right? Like the yeah. copper IUD has been around for literally decades. But so they're, they're both, you know, devices that are inserted through the cervix into the uterus, which I'll just, it's worth mentioning, it's not surgery. I don't know. I've had some patients who are not quite clear how that works, but it's just in the doctor's office. It's inserted. It can be painful going in. Both of them can be painful going in. The hormonal one obviously secretes a little bit of, not hormone, but contraceptive drug into the uterus, and some of that gets into the body as well. So the downsides to the hormonal IUD is that it can cause some of the same side effects you get from the pill, including hair loss, mood changes. Actually, mood is one of the big ones with the hormonal IUD. The copper IUD does not release hormones. It's the main mechanism of action, I think, is that the copper ions themselves impair sperm locally in the uterus. It, it does, okay, so it can make periods heavier, about 50% heavier. It can make periods a bit more painful but usually only for the first three months. It alters both types of IUD, IUD alter what's called the vaginal microbiome, which is the good bacteria living in the vagina, which can cause, potentially lead to things something like vaginosis or just a um, abnormal discharge. Um, the copper IUD, even the copper IUD seems can cause mood problems. And I think... There's all sorts of theories about why that is. Is that the copper ions actually doing that, affecting the brain, or you know, affecting the brain by potentially outcompeting zinc, or is it something else? And I actually think this is just my theory mm-hmm. because both the cervix, which is that bottom part of the uterus where there's a string going through, you know, I guess the, the IUD is sitting pretty close to that. Um, it has a lot of nerve supply, and it actually has something called the vagus nerve in the cervix. So I just feel like for some women, potentially their nervous system doesn't like having a device there. It's just kind of upsetting somehow to the nervous system, but there's no science on that. Mm-hmm. That's just something that, yeah, that I've kind of wondered about. So I'm not a huge fan of the copper ID. I don't love it, but at the same time, I do prefer it to the pill, mainly because it permits hormonal cycling permits ovulation so you get Mm -hmm. to make the good hormones that we need yeah I know my friend Courtney Swan um, has talked a bit about her experience with the copper IUD and how I think you you know her um, about how much that 
gave her mood issues. Um, and like yeah. a lot of women are told there's no risk with the copper IUD because there's no hormones, but like you could, something could still be happening. Um, and I don't know if what your opinion is on this, but do you think at all that just putting something into your body like that could lead to autoimmunity, like autoimmune disease? I don't, I don't know yeah. on that. I mean, I, I haven't seen anything to link copper IUD to autoimmune. I haven't. Yeah. So, I mean, I wouldn't totally dismiss it. And just, just mm-hmm. to say, to respond to, you know, yes, there's something happening with the copper IUD that we don't understand. We, we know really in big picture, we know so little about the human body and even less about the female body because scientists haven't really cared to look at the female body very much. So of course, there's things about it that we don't understand. We only we didn't know until recently how much the copper IUD affects the vaginal microbiome, for example. So yes, I mean, I think I think a big problem in women's health is that women have, would say things, you know, say I'm feeling anxious from this or this has affected me, and doctors would the attitude was doctors would just not believe them or tell them that they're imagining things. So mm-hmm. that needs to change. Um, yeah, the, on the topic of autoimmunity, it's worth mentioning that hormonal birth control, all types of hormonal birth control, increase the risk of autoimmune disease because those drugs, contraceptive drugs, affect the immune system. So that's another side to things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, all that said about the copper IUD, I don't love it. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't. But I do. I, it is worth saying that I, I know some people also, you know, natural practitioners who use it and are happy with it. So it is worth mentioning that it you know might be something to consider you can always remove it too you know i think one problem has been there's been some stories out there of when doctors put it in but then don't want to take it out it's like that should not ever happen like as soon as you want it removed Mm -hmm. the doctor should just remove it and do that for you yeah i would certainly hope so It's a little yes. scary. It certainly, it certainly <laughs> helps. So, yeah. yeah, well, I need to go soon, but just to kind of wrap up, I think like a question would be like, what is a healthy period? Because I, a lot of people think like PMS is, that's just what happens. Um, is yeah. it normal to get PMS or what is a healthy period gonna, gonna feel like? Yeah. So a healthy period should arrive every between kind of 21 to 35 days, up to 45 days if you're young, if you're a teenager, early 20s. And then it should arrive fairly symptom-free. I mean, it's okay if you notice a few subtle differences with your mood. That's, that's fine. And it should arrive without pain. I would say PMS, severe PMS or significant PMS is not normal. It is common. It happens to the best of us, I mean, all of us at some point. It's usually, it's quite a good marker that there's been too much stress or some chronic inflammation or something just not quite right that month. Because I think when everything's good and we're fully nourished and, you know, no inflammation, then the, the easy period coming, you know, the no PMS is is a good, is a good sign. So I do talk about that in my book. I say the period's a monthly report card. The PMS is even a more of a, you know, monthly report card that we can use to monitor ourselves month by month okay so and yeah i like to raise the bar of expectation periods should not be painful should not be difficult should not be too heavy okay i'm curious what is there a reason why women tend to get like bloated and cramping around their period like what is what is the reason i think a lot of it's to do with just some of the um prostaglandin some of the kind of chemical changes like um a bit of inflammation that happens leading up to the period but again that can be usually offset by or improved by some very simple treatments that I talk about in period repair manual. So zinc is one we've talked about already that can help with period pain and PMS, magnesium, vitamin B6. I'm a fan of some of those quite simple nutrients that can make, yeah, make a big difference. What, what forms of zinc and magnesium do you prefer? Um, with zinc, it could be, well, it could be different forms, but let's say zinc citrate or zinc picolinate with magnesium. The preferred is probably something called zinc, or sorry, magnesium glycinate or magnesium bisglycinate or magnesium citrate. Um, and there's a lot of different brands. It's not like one brand that works. There's yeah. lots of different brands that have those ingredients. 
Okay, great. Yeah, I'm sure every woman listening to this is going to go get some zinc and magnesium. <laughs> I, read, I read a review of my book on Amazon. It's one of my favorite reviews. She said, she said basically, take magnesium. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, but there's some other good stuff in the book, too. I'm like, yeah, that's fair. That was a fair, <laughs> fair review. Yeah. Eat enough food and yeah. take magnesium. That's yeah, exactly. what you need to do. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Well, thank yeah. you again so yeah. much for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge. Um, a lot of women need this information and your book is like life changing. Every single woman needs this. Um, it's, it's the female Bible, I swear. Um, so could you just remind everyone where they can find more from you? Yep. So my blog is larabryden.com and all of my social media is at Lara Bryden, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, I'm easy to find. And my book is period repair manual on Amazon and iTunes and all the usual places. Great. Thank you again so much, Dr. Bryden. It was so great chatting with you. Great to chat with you. Thank you so much to Dr. Lara Bryden for coming on the podcast and sharing all of her knowledge. Make sure you pick up her book, Period Repair Manual, if you don't already have it. You can find her on Instagram at Lara Bryden, L-A-R-A-B-R-I-D-E-N. You can also head to her website, larabryden.com, to find all of her incredible blog posts about many of the topics we discussed in this show and many more. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you let Dr. Bryden know. Make sure you share it on social media, take a screenshot and tag us and tell people about the episode. Share it with anyone who you think it would benefit. If you're not already in the Facebook group, please join Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe is the name. Just search for that and you will get added in. And If you haven't already, make sure you leave a rating and review on iTunes and or Stitcher. It really helps me spread the word about the show. And don't forget that right now, Wellness Realness Retreat tickets are on sale. Now's the time. Let me know if you have any questions, but I'm so excited for this retreat this July and cannot wait to meet more of you guys in person. It's going to be amazing. That's going to be it for this episode. I hope you have an incredible day. Do something nice for yourself. Sending you good vibes as always. And I will chat with you again next time. Bye.